can it take more than you can give there will be late nights and there will be the tears honor the next one the smile reappears don't show your weaknesses no cracks in the veneer just remember save a little for yourself people just don't understand if it all gets too much don't be afraid to talk it's okay to walk away towards a caring hand everyone I know what you're thinking yeah it's a bit somber today isn't it normally I try and do a more amusing song but in the circumstances with the the queen passing away yesterday this feels kind of appropriate and of course this is nothing to do with the queen this is a song for us in general practice born out of a conversation I was having with my wife as we were just chatting about the profoundly sad story of Gail Milligan. And I can't help but think, and I freely admit I don't know almost any of the details about uh, what went on there, but I can't help but think that that could easily be any of us when the pressures of the job, some of the horrors that we have to somehow live with or live through, get too much for us. So this song is not about her. This song is really just a reminder for all of us that it's okay to say we're struggling, it's okay to say it's hard, it's okay to walk away if you need to, it's okay to get some help. I see, and this is purely coincidental, believe me, that um, tomorrow is World Suicide Prevention Day. Just saw that on an email from the BMA last night. The BMA are really pushing their resources on well-being at the moment, and I think they are well worth a read. The fundamental issue we've got here is that to improve well-being, improve on the pressures in practice, their recommendation is to try and reduce workload. None of us know how that's going to work out. And of course, the other big news that we have this week is a new prime minister. We've got a new cabinet. We've got a new health secretary as well. And GP appointments are back on the agenda. So it will be really interesting to see how on earth they manage to fit this square peg in a round hole. Okay, so we've had our period of reflection. Time to get a little bit more upbeat. Let's start the podcast. It's Friday, the 9th of September, 2022, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. 
Welcome. Thanks for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast from NB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker and I will be taking you through the next 15 to 20 minutes or so as we shoot the breeze about what's been going on in life in general practice and have a little look at what's been going on in the world of research relevant to us in primary care. Now, before I forget, and I always forget because I just kind of get a bit lost in whatever I'm talking about when we're doing these podcasts, the office up in Newcastle reminded me I must tell you about our NB Plus offer. We're doing a back to school offer at the moment. There's £25 off our annual subscription of NB Plus, making it less than £300 for the whole year. If you haven't come across NB Plus before, it's amazing. It gives you access to all of our live webinars, all of our online courses. Um, that we do throughout the year. We've got more than a dozen courses that we run now. We're just launching our dermatology course tomorrow. That's going to be fantastic. MB Plus also gives you access to all of our courses on demand so that you can, you can watch them whenever is convenient for you. Also to our fantastic CPD modules, safeguarding, CPR and more. So do, do check it out. It's a fantastic deal. It ends on Monday, so do not do what I do and procrastinate for way too long. Just um, get on and sign up. So what's been going on in the news? Well, okay, we've already we've already mentioned the Queen. I have to say that made me feel pretty sad. I'm actually quite a big fan of the Queen. I'm not really a royalist. I'm generally against institutions that encourage inequality. So I can't really justify my position to myself. Maybe I just don't have to. Don't overthink these things, Neil. She seemed like a decent person. She always did a great job. And she was a constant in our lives in a world that's constantly changing. She's also an example of perhaps what you can achieve into older age, given the fact that she was working until just a few days before she passed away. We, of course, have a new government and regular listeners to the podcast will know that I'm not a particular fan of the Tories and I'm not going to get all political about things at the moment. But good luck, Liz Trust. You have got your work cut out for you. You have come into the prime prime minister position when things are really tough. You'll seen in the medical press, of course, a lot of talk, a lot of concern around fuel poverty over the winter. And I think this is a huge issue. I suspect that most people listening to this podcast have a reasonable disposable income. And although it's not great to have to spend loads on energy bills, you can kind of soak it up. But there are lots and lots of families out there, lots and lots of people out there, lots of older people as well who will be really struggling with this. And an extra two or three hundred pounds every single month is a lot of money for a lot of people to find. That is the difference between uh, having the lights on, having the heating on, being able to eat properly, being able to put shoes on your children's feet. And when all that is going on, then health starts to suffer. So it's great that the government is rapidly trying to find an answer to this. You may or may not agree with exactly the approach that they take, but at least they're trying to get something done really quickly. Meanwhile, in the practice, many of you will be gearing up to start COVID vaccines again and flu vaccines in the not too distant future too. It's clearly going to be a busy winter. Hopefully we won't see huge spikes in respiratory infections who knows what's going to happen with COVID. Um, but at least last year, we didn't have huge levels of respiratory illness. And it's a bit, things with the season still seemed a bit messed up at the moment. So both my kids and I think my wife have just had a probably para-influenza because my older one, and eight, my eight-year-old, randomly had croup a couple of weeks ago. And we were seeing quite a lot of croup the year before in the summer, which is not when you would necessarily expect it. 
fingers crossed the nation is at least getting some of these infections out of the way now so that they don't hit us all come December. And random news story, NICE has approved faecal transplants for the treatment of recurrent C. diff. I feel like I've been talking about this research for years. It's great to see that it's making it into the real world now. Soon some of our patients will be able to have poo in a pill. Now the limiting factor here is going to be cost and I couldn't believe the cost of a faecal microbiota transplant material. £850 per 50 mils. A nice estimate that oral capsules are likely to cost between five and six hundred pounds. Now I know what you're thinking. I think I could do it for a lot less than that. I've got a ready production line in my house. I just need to get a few little capsules and away we go. I'm pretty sure there's some famous quote about there's money in shit. I don't know if I've got that from like Terry Pratchett, The Sopranos or something else entirely. But if anyone fancies going into business with me, then come on over. Just bring some gloves and a mask. Now, there's three bits of research we're going to talk about today. Two in the Lancet, one about autoimmune diseases and cardiovascular risk, and the other in the Lancet being about statins and muscle symptoms. And then a, a really interesting one in the New England Journal of Medicine about open source automated insulin delivery in type 1 diabetes. And I know what you're thinking, that sounds a little bit niche and probably most of us don't get very hands-on with many of our patients with type 1 diabetes, but this is just a really interesting highlight of where technology is going. Before I start with those, it might be worth it. I was going to just quickly mention some of the research in the BMJ. They seem to have had a really big push on nutritional research. And nutrition research is always fraught with problems. It's really, really hard to conduct. It's really hard to get um, solid information, solid data, which is why we so often see contradictory findings. Firstly, we've got a paper on artificial sweeteners and cardiovascular risk and I'll just skip to the conclusion which is that this large-scale prospective cohort study suggests a possible direct association between higher artificial sweetener consumption and increased cardiovascular risk. You thought that sugar was the enemy well artificial sugar may be too. This is really important because as industries are trying to reduce the amount of sugar they put in their foods, they replace it often with artificial sweeteners. You would think that that's going to be a really benign substance, but actually maybe it does still drive harmful processes in the body. Of course, the message is not that sugar is better, just that this may not be quite such a straightforward, safe alternative. Take it all with a pinch of salt, of course not a real pinch of salt because that might put your blood pressure up and cause you cardiovascular disease as well but take it with a hypothetical pinch of salt this time next year we may have some research that tells us something completely different again now the nights are drawing in many of us will be reaching to that little jar of vitamin d that's been sitting at the back of the cupboard for the summer and I know that on this podcast and on the Hot Topics course before, we've talked about vitamin D and some studies that shown if you are low in vitamin D and you take supplementation, then it reduces your chance of getting respiratory tract infections over the winter. But in the existing research, people with normal levels of vitamin D don't seem to get uh, an extra boost. So this is really about bringing people back up to baseline with their immunity, not about boost giving them an extra boost of their immunity. So this new randomised control trial in the BMJ looks at whether you can test the population to see if they're deficient in vitamin D and then target that group with supplementation and whether then that improves their outcomes in respiratory tract infections, including COVID as well. 
The bottom line was testing people to find their vitamin D status, then giving them supplements didn't improve the rates of respiratory tract infection or COVID. It doesn't seem to work. Now, there may be reasons why they had this finding in this study compared with the other studies which had positive results. This was a pragmatic real world study and they note that almost half of people in the non-treatment group went off and took their own vitamin D supplements at some point during the trial. So of course this may have diluted any effect that they were going to see. Equally, it may just be if you have a relatively balanced diet and you get a bit of sun sometimes over the summer, then supplements don't help, which is what they found in the third study. Another uh, randomized placebo-controlled trial, this time looking at cod liver oil as a low-dose vitamin D supplement, and they found that that didn't help prevent COVID or other acute respiratory infections. What can we take away from this? Stop stressing about the supplements. Let's enjoy some real food. Now, on to the studies that I really wanted to talk about, and I am going to have to be uncharacteristically succinct, I think. So let's start with this Lancet paper on autoimmune diseases and cardiovascular risk. Now, it may be that this caught my eye because I have A, ulcerative colitis, and B, have had several runs of AF over the years. So it feels directly applicable to me, but I also think it acts as a reminder for any of us looking after patients who've got autoimmune conditions. So this was a retrospective cohort study of adults in the UK who had a new diagnosis of any of 19 autoimmune conditions. They needed to be under 80 years old at diagnosis and not had any existing cardiovascular disease in the last 12 months. And they looked at 22 million patient records identifying almost 500,000 people with autoimmune diseases, then comparing that group against 2 million matched controls. The average age was 46, around 60% were women, 40% were men, and overall 15% of people with autoimmune disease developed incident cardiovascular disease over the course of the study follow-up period, which was on average six years. That compares with 11% of those without autoimmune disease. So that's an average of a 56% increase in your risk. But if you've got multiple autoimmune diseases, that goes up to almost four times the risk. And of course, we know that these conditions do come in clusters. Interestingly, they also found that your risk is greater the younger you are. I don't know if that just reflects that autoimmune conditions maybe burn themselves out a little bit if when people get older or if those who are at highest risk just die when they're younger. And so if you've made it into older age, your risk is inherently lower. In any case, the message that I took from this paper is just to be mindful about that cardiovascular risk in all patients who have got autoimmune disorders. This won't be adequately reflected in our cardiovascular risk tools and once again just highlights the benefit of having clinicians that can provide individualised patient care. Next is a paper that published in today's Lancet but actually has been online for a few weeks now and you may have seen the the blog from Rob Walker on the mbmedical.com website, which talks a little bit more around this subject. And the conclusion of this um, study, which looks at statin therapy and muscle pain, is that in almost all cases, muscle pain is not due to statin use. So the authors of the paper did a meta-analysis of large trials of statins. So they had to have at least a thousand participants. They had to use statins for at least two years and it had to be a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. 
They included 23 trials and 150,000 patients. So over the average of four-year follow-up of this large group, 27.1% of people who were receiving a statin reported some muscle pain, compared to 26.6% who were receiving placebo. So that's a rate ratio of 1.03%. It is a statistically significant finding. It feels like a pretty small difference, but I'll be honest, I find it quite hard to extrapolate that into the real world. Thankfully, the authors have done that. So they suggest that in those patients who are reporting uh, muscle-related symptoms when they start a statin, only one in 15 of them is actually down to the drug. The data also shows that if you're going to get statin-related muscle side effects, then it's going to happen within the first year, after which they fail to find any significant excess. What message can we take away then from this paper? Well, if people report to us muscle pain when they're taking statins, the good news for them is that, especially if it's beyond the first year of their therapy, then it probably isn't the statins. The bad news is, It's probably just that they're getting older. Okay, the last study is in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this is talking about how people with type 1 diabetes can give themselves insulin. If you have type 1 diabetes and you are younger or if you're an adult who's struggling with their control, particularly if you're getting lots of hypos, then there's a reasonable chance these days that you might have an insulin pump. Now, I have to say, I'm not really that up to speed with all the um, technologies around insulin management these days, but pumps are pretty neat. They mean that you need less injections because you insert a little cannula under the skin, which can stay in for two or three days, and then you just get a uh, insulin injected down this little tube from the device, which has a reservoir for the medicine. And it will generally give you a... A constant background dose of insulin and then you can have bolus doses when you have food as well. Traditionally pumps haven't been able to actually check what your blood sugar is so you still need to do finger prick tests and then adjust the dose that the pump is giving accordingly. More recently they have developed these closed loop systems where they have a sensor which then Uh, can measure your blood glucose down the same um, cannula, I think, which then allows the device to actually work out what the most appropriate dose is for you. The limiting feature is as the technology gets more complex, then of course it gets more expensive and then that means that access is limited. Many people may have actually gone and bought their own pumps at a cost of two to three thousand pounds. They then also have to pay for the consumables, which may be an extra grand or two on top per year. Given the large costs, individuals or perhaps also the NHS may be reluctant to be upgrading people's pumps to the latest technologies when when they emerge. Now, of course, we also have new technologies for measuring blood glucose. We've got our continuous glucose monitoring systems and our flash glucose monitors as well. And some smart individuals realized, well, why don't we try and marry up the two? And so they then have written, and this is not the manufacturers, this is not scientists, this is um, probably the actual um, people with diabetes or their families who have actually written this. They've written code, programs and apps to be able to marry up these continuous glucose monitors with people's existing pumps. And they published it open source. And so around the world, many, many thousands of people will have been using this Um, arguably unsanctioned approach. 
So this New England Journal of Medicine paper was an open-label, randomised controlled trial assigning people with type 1 diabetes to either this open-source automated insulin delivery system or a sensor-augmented insulin pump, which was the control group. So this was 97 patients, um, half of them were children, half of them were adults, followed up for 24 weeks. And the amazing thing here was not just that the open-source system could match the manufacturer's sensor-augmented sensor insulin pump. It, in fact, produced better results. People spent significantly higher percentages of time in their target glucose range, over three hours more every single day. I appreciate that this is probably not going to change any of our practices on a day-to-day -day basis anytime soon, but what I take away from this paper is power to the people. There are some really smart um, people that when they put their heads together, they can do really amazing things. Let's try and help them on that journey. Okay, I think that is enough for today. Thank you for joining us once again. Don't forget, we've got a whole load of stuff coming up with MB over the next few weeks. So tomorrow morning, we've got our half-day dermatology course, brand new course. If you can't join us for the live webinar, do um, come and join us um, for Catch Up On Demand. The following Friday, we've got our uh, Hot Topics in Primary Care Nurses course. Then the next day, Saturday the 17th, we've got our mental health course. The week after that, we've got the brand new Hot Topics course that we just finished doing the presentations for yesterday. That's going to be fantastic. Do join us for that and then we got loads of stuff coming up over the course of October as well I know that I'm doing an, uh, a free evening webinar in conjunction with Crohn's and Colitis UK on managing um, inflammatory bowel disease flares and much more so do join us for that and there's loads more stuff going on so do check out the website as ever you can get in touch so um, you can email um, hot topics at NB medical we're on Twitter at GP hot topics Facebook as well. I look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Look after yourselves, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.